Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Life finds a way. That's no wait. That that was Jeff Goldblum's line. You can't. This isn't some flea circus. <laughs> Everybody, it is our Jurassic Park episode. I've been excited about this for months, and I haven't been able to do this Patreon donated funded episode for months because you know why, Jake? Why? This is a fucking birthday surprise. Uh, How rad is that? I've been trying to keep it under wraps. Today, the birthday. Come talk about dinosaurs. This episode is for Steven. Happy birthday from your girlfriend. Bree, your girlfriend <gasps> set this up forever ago because she's awesome. You need to worship her for the rest of your life because I've literally never done something this cool for a significant other on their birthday, and I probably never will. This this episode is dedicated to you and your birthday, and I believe it's coming out on his fucking actual birthday. You know what? I've been involved in geek and nerd-based media for a good chunk of my life at this point, and this fucking show, with its <laughs> abundance of loving girlfriends, is just totally <laughs> blowing up my scene, all right? Bree... Uh, you could not have picked up and she you know she hit me up and and, and um to, we took a lot of care to make sure that we didn't fuck this up because we always record our episodes a week ahead of time right mm-hmm. so the timing is exact it should be she's uh she's been so sweet and was so worried she would like we wouldn't you know I, I don't know that we we or she was so surprised at how accommodating we were being i was like fuck yeah because this is amazing yeah. <laughs> this is so cool so you rule steven happy birthday um and if you ever fucking hurt her if you ever fucking hurt Bree, I swear to God, if you ass. lay a hand on this beautiful <laughs> creature. <laughs> so today's episode is about Jurassic Park. I can't wait to just scream. I, I have a ton of notes of information here, but before I can even get into that, I have to scream about my personal relationship with this mm-hmm. film because it was so colossal, so huge. You know, I feel like people ask, what was your first like R-rated movie, right? Mm-hmm. Well, for me, I think it was a like, cliffhanger and it was very anticlimactic, like kind of like my dad was just kind of like, all right, you can watch this. You know, yeah. we watched it. It was like a home movie thing. And I was like, okay, cool. And then it was like cliffhanger, so it was fine. But this was the first reel because I think I was like 10 or 11. So I was just barely maybe quote unquote underage for the film. It was a PG-13 film, correct? Mm-hmm. And I remember when it came out, like the whole day was geared around this movie. And I don't even think I was very aware that this movie was coming out at the time. I was a little kid, like whatever. But I loved dinosaurs, had a huge love for two things, dinosaurs in Egypt you know, ancient Egypt, those are, you know, very like normal 
And, uh, you know, I'd heard about the movie. I was like, this looks amazing. I really want to go. You know, we had to get the tickets early. Everyone was screaming about it. There was all this hubbub about, like, about this movie coming out. And I remember my parents had to be like, now, Holden, this is a PG-13 movie. There's going to be violence and scary stuff. It's like Laura Dern's going to just whip out her uh, yabos. Reveal her yobos. <laughs> as they, but they didn't say yabos. They said yobos, which is weird. <laughs> it's a regional thing. It's a regional thing. And, uh, yeah, I, I remember the whole day was, like, geared up to this. And part of it was, like, our are you Sam you Neil's ha- gonna have like a tasteful butt shot? <laughs> it was like, do you have the courage to, you know, do that? Are you like old enough? This was like kind of a sign of maturity for me. And I remember going to the thing and being like, yeah, I think I can handle it. I remember it was the first time I've ever like stood in a line in front of a movie theater. It was the first time I saw like that much. Um, hype. just hype about a movie like everyone was going fucking bananas and I was like whoa people like get to the movie early for certain movies and like stand in line I feel like I'm going to a fucking rock concert or something I feel like I'm seeing Talica which is what I called Metallica at the time that's not true I was not <laughs> I was again I was 10 or 11 years old and I remember having my mind a hundred percent blown by every inch of that movie every inch of that movie I remember like I think I only saw it the one time in the theaters, but I do remember it came out on VHS. I picked it up. What was funny was we picked it up on the way to stay at a mountain cottage for the weekend that didn't have a VCR. So I'd literally just like stare at this VHS tape. That's a fucking, that is a specific memory. That like only eighties and like nineties kids will ever like talk about. Yeah. It's the having the media the physical copy, but not having the means to play it and just like holding it like a sacred relic. Dude, I would like smell it because it had that new, you know, tape smell and everything. And I would just like look at it, ogle it. And then when finally we got home, I saw and that it plain black box too. So you didn't really yeah. get like a lot of like, there wasn't an, like you didn't get a hit. Yeah. And, and I was telling you right before we started this, I, uh, I haven't seen the movie since back then um, until earlier today because it was the one and only movie, the first ever and the one and only movie that I actually ruined for myself by watching it literally every single day after school. I would sit down, do my homework with Jurassic Park on the screen to the point where I memorized every inch of that movie and to the point where I was like, oh, this is why you shouldn't do this with movies because you'll like ruin them (laughs) for yourself. Nope, doesn't happen. I did the same thing with Empire Strikes Back. Still loved it when I watched it again for the show. That's a dark one for uh, to do every day. Good lord! No, it's fine. (laughs) That's a bummer one, Jake. Jake, what was your experience? Where were you? You know, all Uh, that good stuff. Like everyone else, I was obsessed with dinosaurs. I had my I watched Dino Saucers. I I had my Dino Riders. I knew all the names. I was I I like the Ankylosaurus the best. The, the 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 core thing is like you wanted to see them like they were these relics you could only see them in like picture books or like in toys or like in cartoons and then like in old movies like the stop motion animation was always like kind of janky i'm thinking of like you know king kong and stuff like it was never quite right this all you wanted to see were these monsters in real life and jurassic park offered that it was this like once like we did it we're gonna do it I remember being a big enough nerd that the fact that it was using computer imagery was like a big deal. Huge. Um, getting caught up in that hype, the idea that these are like 
These are images that no human were, was capable of producing before that. Dude, the the sound up to remember just the um what is it called? We'll get into it. We'll absolutely get into but it. But the digital sound thing that played at the beginning, THX or the, something? T- is it T? No, it's is it THX? But anyways, even just that was like this is the first ever movie made with digital sound, and that music just like blasted <laughs> through your fucking ears, and you were like, holy shit! Digital theater systems, DTS, and it went like. Like like right at the beginning of the movie, which added even more to the hype because I turned to my brother. I went with like my whole family, and I turned to my brother. And was like, "Holy shit, this is gonna be terrifying." Those monsters, are like even more scary than before, because they have new sound. <laughs> like, what is happening? It was just so good. I mean, and the sound is so amazing in this movie. I had the fucking action figures, man. Of course, I had. They had the JP Mark with real dino damage. I had the Velociraptor screaming electronic toy that when you squeezed its legs, it would go. (laughs) And like the batteries on that thing, I swear to God, lasted 12 years. Like I'd be cleaning my room like a decade later and shuffle a pile and you just hear muffled like. (laughs) Um, They had the fucking jacked Sam Neill with a catapult like net launcher, a Muldoon figure with a rocket launcher that looked nothing like the fucking actor. Um, But. Uh, the only reason I'm just going to acknowledge this because I know people who know me listen to this. And uh, yes, I did have a birthday party that year and I did take people to see Jurassic Park way too late into its run and people weren't that excited about it. And whatever, the movie was still awesome. Uh, I remember getting out of we're not going to get into, by the way, the sequels or anything like that. Maybe we'll do like a bonus up something kind of roundup of the sequels we're just talking about the first movie but i remember last day of school i forget what school year it was we got out of school early and the first thing we did was went straight to the theater to see i think lost world right mm-hmm. um and you know it was just it was so I, I was so hyped on the uh jurassic park it was just such such a huge huge like the logo everything we'll talk about the logo we'll talk about but it all just came together so wonderfully to make for this just the best little kid block summer blockbuster of all time you know i mean for for my uh lifetime at least it's honestly uh i was watching it with marie marie's uh studied music uh for a long period of time she's actually trained as an opera singer and like we're just like floored by how every scene transition is like flawlessly builds on what was established before it uh every line of dialogue is pithy and communicates something essential for the plot or the characterization constantly moves forward just nothing stops that movie they compare it it's literally uh even steven spielberg admits it's literally a theme park ride where they're just moving from zone to zone to zone always with forward momentum yeah at the end like the comparison we ended up making was this is a mozart symphony (laughs) and if you're like super into music Eventually, you get bored by a Mozart symphony because every note is perfectly placed where it's supposed to be. Right. But after, like, so many years of watching so many people just fuck up (laughs) the (laughs) basics of, like, regular music, sometimes it's just eye-opening just to watch someone nail the fundamentals so perfectly every step of the way. It's it's uh, it it was honestly so refreshing. Like there weren't any glaring flaws. There weren't like real weak points. It was you know it wasn't it didn't like shake me to my core or like no. make me question what it means to be to have my identity question. I mean, as a little me- kid, it scared the fuck out of me. Shoot her! <laughs> Shoot her! It scared the <laughs> living piss out of me. The fucking raptors in the kitchen scene and. All that good stuff, you know. I mean, I mean the Tyrannosaurus Rex scene, you know, 
It just lit, scared the living lord out of me. Those those uh, dinosaurs were so realistic. But um, I guess we, we we'll, let's get into it now. And this all starts but with the the rock star of the techno thriller novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm talking about Bad to the Bone. Michael Crichton. Mm. Michael Crichton. Born in Chicago in 1942. Holy shit, Michael Crichton's from Chicago. That's right, son. He was a blues musician. No, that's <laughs> not true at all. His father was a journalist, though. He ended up getting raised on Long Island, though. He went to Harvard in 1960 and majored in English. Um, and he was a bit of a rabble-rouser. He had a professor that he strongly believed was kind of going against him, just unfairly giving him great bad grades and stuff like that because he just didn't like him. So he submitted an essay by George. Orwell and um, made it as his uh, put his name on it instead of Orwell's and he got a B minus and everybody was like what Michael Crichton you're so crazy I mean that sounds to me like straight plagiarism but what are you gonna do uh, he ended up uh, because he it's had this nice to just throw a dick <laughs> dick swing competition with your Harvard education <laughs> In undergrad too, right? Yeah. He he issued um, the, the the issue he had with this teacher essentially led him to kind of his his path in life as the kind of novelist he became because he ended up switching his major to biological anthropology. Uh, this is a subfield of anthropology that provides a biological perspective to the systematic study of human beings, but it also just kind of pushed him into the direction of science, you know, as mm. a, as well as his you know kind of writing uh, urges, right? Uh, he ends up getting his MD from Harvard in nineteen. 19- 1969, but he never gets a license to practice medicine. So he studied it in, in uh, at Harvard, got his um, master's in it, uh, but ended up not actually wanting to get uh, to get into the practice of it. Just just kind of the politics of working, I think, in the hospitals. Just he just didn't like it. You know, scientists are fucking cutthroat. By the way, I have a friend who's a scientist, and like the politics that happen in a lab oh, yeah. are ruthless. <laughs> people will sabotage other people's work to get ahead. You know, like nobody wants to like support anybody else because they all are just trying to like get to be the next level number one yeah it's real real intense as in former comedians we definitely don't know what that's like <laughs> they're all like i'm so happy for you i'm so happy you got montreal you're sharpening a knife in front of me <laughs> He ends up publishing a few novels before really finding his his niche niche niche. Why can't I say that word right now? It's pronounced niche. Niche. Uh, he uh, he did that with a book called A Case of Need. It's a medical thriller in which a Boston pathologist, Doctor John Barry, investigates an apparent illegal abortion conducted by an obstetrician friend, which caused the early demise of a young woman. And I think this is all kind of starting out with this. It's very technical, the science side of it, you know, and. And I will say this about Crichton's work and about what even the way when I teach like a comedy writing class and uh, really the basis of the wizard and the bruiser, I always say to people, you know, you want to like you want to both entertain and also teach if the audience can walk away feeling like they've learned something from like your play or your screenplay or whatever you do or your podcast. It's so much stronger than, you know, than just being funny or just, you know, this or that or just being entertaining. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I. I really do actually kind of connect a lot to um, kind of his the basis of his work. I also realized this too before, uh, not to get too far off topic. I'm pretty sure Jurassic Park was the first like adult novel I ever read as well. Makes sense. It was like that or the. I think also maybe The Client by John Grisham. Wow, you were a basic bitch. Yes, I was super basic bitch. I was like, yeah, I dressed as a pumpkin latte for Halloween that year. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's uh, actually incredibly forward thinking. <laughs> There's like a Starbucks executive being like, that little boy's on to something. <laughs> It's 1993, man. I love grunge. This is Seattle. <laughs> uh, so the novel that really pushed him into bestseller territory, I totally remember. I totally listened to it book on tape. Is That was another thing I liked to do as a kid. Listen to book on tapes and put puzzles together in my room. God damn it. Yeah, dude. I listened to a ton of Stephen King whenever we do the Stephen King episode. I'm sure I'll talk about it. But yeah, it was like Stephen King short stories. Definitely remember doing a lot of Crichton. Definitely remember the Andromeda Strain. Oh, yeah. The Andromeda Strain came out in 1969, which is way earlier than I ever thought it came out. Um, It's about a team of scientists investigating a deadly extraterrestrial microorganism that fatally clots human blood, causing death within two minutes. And it's pretty good. Um, I I, I remember enjoying it a lot. I mean, you know, his writing can get a little too technical, a little too bland. Um, But uh, I do do remember enjoying that. I don't know. Know if I went thing back, like, if I would the 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 wall of technical stuff just like so thoroughly like just builds this foundation in your mind that like once you understand the science, however like you know he fudges it to like make it work, everything else that happens in the tale of sci-fi daring do is that much more believable. It's kind of yes. like the opposite of like the Philip K. Dick thing. Where he was just kind of like, it's the future, this thing is magic, science, whatever, it doesn't matter, I want to just get to the character stuff. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, Crichton will build this this mountain of jargon and, and, and science and lay out why this could be real. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to, like, the two-fisted action... You, like it's just that much more visceral because you're like so thoroughly grounded yeah. in the reality that he's laid out. He often was exploring technology and failures and human interaction with it. A lot of cautionary tales this Crichton liked to weave a yarn of. Uh, he is especially especially uh, resulting in catas- catastrophes with biotechnology. Of course, in you, 19... 19- you wanted to cure cancer, but did you ever think you'd create super cancer? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, science! In 1980, he publishes Congo, baby! Mm. Remember Congo? I mean, it's by far. I mean, I only saw the movie, but it had lasers being shot at gorillas. I would not be opposed to a Congo giggle flicks, by the way, because that would actually be a nostalgic one that I've I've seen too many times. It was on HBO so much. Hear me out. What if we just fast forward it to only the Tim Curry parts? Okay, (laughs) we could do that. Let's just watch just a bunch of Tim Curry scenes from various films and do a giggle flicks over that and just make it impossible for anyone to actually watch the movie along with us because we did that. Uh, He published which is Congo in 1980. It refers, uh, and he refers to it actually as a lost world novel. And this is kind of what's pushing him more into the direction of what what would he would get to with Jurassic Park about super smart evolved gorillas that protect a diamond mine in the Congo. It's a ridiculous ass movie. Uh, I would definitely, <laughs> I would definitely say watch this crazy ass fucking film. I don't think I read Congo. Did you read any Crichton? No, I never touched it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was for me. I mean, I feel like a lot of kids were like, were like, I'm so into Jurassic. Park, I read the fucking book and mm-hmm. not like the bullshitty for kids adaptation of the movie. Like, I read the book. <laughs> And also, too, I wanted to, like, know all the extra scenes and stuff, which we'll talk about in just a second here, because in 1990, Crichton publishes the novel Jurassic Park. We've gotten up to date to the book. Of course, um, the thing is, the book was almost like a a secondary thought when talking about the movie, mm. because it was uh, Spielberg. Was had met yes. Crichton before. They had uh, like met while the Andromeda Strain was being uh, filmed. I literally Spielberg says that he gave him a studio tour just as like a favor to the producers. And 
he was working with Crichton on a adaptation for his uh, medical drama, which later became ER. Yes. And that, so while they were, they were having just a total side, com- they were having a full on conversation about ER or about a screenplay, the version of ER that, you know, later turned into the TV show. And it was just like, oh, yeah, by the way, I've got this like Dinosaur billion movie. dollar idea, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which sparked a massive bidding war. Everybody wanted a piece of this thing. And before, like, the manuscript was even, like, off the press, uh, Spielberg pushed for, uh, was it Universal to? Mm-hmm. Well, even before that, it was originally a screenplay written by uh, Crichton in 83. He, uh, a graduate student who recreates a dinosaur in his room, um, and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of like, it didn't really uh, take off very well for him because there was no, like, pressing need to create a dinosaur per se. So, you know, he realized later that it was like, ah, it would have to be for a desire to entertain, hence a park. So he ended up kind of trashing that screenplay as this kind of weird prototype that he had and then um, ends up making it into Jurassic Park. But yeah, it was and it was originally from the p- point of view of a child. But folks who read uh, the draft um, felt that it would be better if it was told by an adult. So they went that way. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, what, what? So they they had this conversation. The book's not even out. Giant bidding war for the screenplay, and Crichton does get to make the screenplay as well. He makes it, but he also, but it's um, what's his name, Phil Kep. Um, mm. But uh, this this guy has like a really weird career where he uh, uh, Spielberg claims injected a lot of the humanity and a lot of like the pithiness uh, that kind of uh, elevated Jurassic Park from like a sci-fi kind of journey to one of the most popcornish films ever made, and. Um, Kep, uh, Cope. I, yeah, K- Cope. David Cope. No, that's a guy we know. <laughs> um, he's like, he ended up making, uh, like, oh, what was, he made like Men in Black 3 and um, a bunch of other. Like, I have David Cope right here. Yeah, Is yeah. That, that's it? That's right? him. David Cope, right? Um, yeah, he he uh, wrote on Mission Impossible, the, the first uh, big Spider-Man and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, like a weird hit and miss kind of deal. Just as an example of Co-op, what Coop did to the script, he added the cartoon exposition. Spielberg He's, claims that was his idea. He said, uh, the way he claims it, I remember Stevens and I were wrestling with that very issue about the DNA, and one of us said, what are we supposed to do? Have a little animated character called Mr. DNA? And the other one said, yes, that's exactly what we're going to do. So uh, the way he puts it, he's not really naming who said what the and making it more into like they kind of came up with it at the same time there was also the writer of hook because uh, around this time spielberg i think was like just finishing making hook the the writer of that actually also helped out with a draft kind of in the in between Crichton and co-op but um he didn't get listed uh, as a writing credit and around this time by the way do we do we specify the bidding war you've got tim burton at warner brothers trying to get it uh, Richard Donner at Columbia. You've got uh, TriStar in the game. And then Joe Dante from 20th Century Fox. All like huge big name directors at the time. Universal's also interested uh, with Steven Spielberg who gets the rights for $1.5 million in 1990. And then an additional 500 G's for Crichton himself uh, to adapt the novels. Crichton's already just like rolling in fucking dough right now off of this novel. Spielberg gets the rights and he's uh, now assembling his dream team of effects artists Mm -hmm. because this is one of the most ambitious projects ever built. He uh, says in an interview that like basically 
Universal had already spent all this money and the technology to realize it didn't really exist. So like they were being they were just burning money to make what was an experimental film at this point. Uh-huh. And uh, two of the uh, guys that he got on board were Stan Winston, mm-hmm. uh, who we've covered, I think, a couple of times already. Yeah. Uh, legendary creature effects guy. He's, uh, he's, aliens. Won an, he's won an Oscar for Aliens, for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. He, he and his team did the T2 exoskeleton, the, the famous. He also worked on Edward Scissorhands and fucking Monster fucking Squad. He has a whole school. Like, he is the practical effects god at, at this point. He went to California State University and at first was trying to be an actor in Hollywood. Forgive me if you've heard this one already. He ended up uh, being a makeup apprentice at Disney before establishing his own studio in the 70s. He starts off in television winning a string of Emmys for uh, the uh, uh, different different telefilms, Gargoyles. He won for The Wiz. He also did the Wookiee costumes for the Star Wars Holiday Special. Uh, <laughs> right? And then I think we've we talked about him. to think for Lumpy? Yes. <laughs> and, I've, and, and, and it is uh, actually um, I think he definitely came up on our Thing episode, the film The Thing. He, he uh, worked with Rob Botton on that movie. I think that's probably where we've talked about it. And also, he designed the Mr. Roboto face mask with sticks. Domori Gatto, Mr. Winston. There uh, you go. <laughs> the other effects artist that, uh, w- you know, this like killer's row of practical effects was a guy named Phil Tippett. You might know Phil Tippett as the internet meme because he's credited as dinosaur supervisor <laughs> in the credits. And there's that uh, hilarious running joke online. Like, like you had one job, Phil Tippett. You had one job. <laughs> but uh, he was a stop motion animator. Yes. Who uh, specifically used the technique known as go motion. Which we talked about actually at length because that was uh, first used in the ATAT scene uh, in Empire Strikes Back. So we definitely... Definitely talked all about go motion. He also did the Ed Two Hundred Nine effects for RoboCop. Uh huh. Uh, And the the core of it is is by using various techniques, you can like blur the image of a stop motion animated uh, uh, figure. So, uh, like, previous attempts to do this involved literally bumping the table as you took the the individual shots. But uh, this was, like, a highly mechanized, coordinated system that allowed for a very intense level of realism in stop motion. But it still had that Harryhausen weird, like, claymation effect. And it's just mainly, it's just adding motion blur. Yeah. is mostly, it just, it just gave, it just took. And depth of field. There's, like, it was, there was, it was as good as you could make stop motion work in a major film. And uh, I still love it. It's still look. I mean, just like I love that 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 scene in in Empire Strikes Back. I mean, it still works for me in an imaginative way. You know, the way he could make things move. He actually ends up get, kind of getting into the dinosaur game real early on. Before th- this, kind of all of his work sort of led up to working on Jurassic Park. Uh, he creates a ten minute experimental film in 1984 called Prehistoric Beast, which had very realistic dinosaurs, and it includes a fight between a T Rex and a uh, Monoclonius. Um, and uh, it led to a CBS animated doc called Dinosaur. Actually, uh, it's on YouTube. Check it out. It's really fascinating to watch. It, again, it's called Prehistoric Beast. And, you know, it doesn't look near as good as Jurassic Park. But you see the seeds being planted there. You can definitely see. I mean, it's really impressive, the idea that some somebody, uh, you know, that, that a guy like him could create that level of... Uh, motion uh, capture on on a dinosaur like that and essentially invent for himself how he would think they would move and act and react to each other. And these are the kinds of things that are very, like, this is super clutch. crazy this is, to do as a solo person. This is part of the magic of Jurassic Park that allows it to, like, kind of break through 
the very limited technology of its time. That limited technology was introduced by a third maestro of special effects named Dennis Murin. Yes. Who I never heard of this guy before, and I feel like an idiot because he literally changed the course of uh, filmmaking forever. He's working at Industrial Light and Magic, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he does digital compositing, which is the process of digitally assembling multiple images to make a final image. He ended up getting a start by funding his own sci-fi short film called Equinox while studying business and college and that was just good enough to allow him to start working right out of school just in time for star wars equinox is its own uh cult favorite at Mm. this point uh i don't know if we actually acknowledged it but there is very there's like a lot of similarities between equinox and the original evil dead ah and several of the cast members of evil dead uh said like oh yeah that was a huge influence on the movie though sam raimi has never confirmed a connection apparently he spearheaded the move from models to cgi and T2, so another T2 guy. Oh, he was he was the guy who did the liquid metal effects mm-hmm. for T2. He was the one responsible for that. And um yeah, he's he's a big player in the whole like what's so huge about Jurassic Park in that sense of taking taking us from stop motion and animatronics to the new future of CGI. So he makes some test footage of uh various uh what's the name of the dinosaurs that like went on that like they were in a herd? I can't remember what which ones those were. Um, the penisaur, not the penisaur, <laughs> but he made uh, test shots of like these dinosaurs running around Marin <laughs> County and a T Rex and showed it to Spielberg and in front of Tippett, who was going to be the guy. And Spielberg's like, "Oh fuck, this is great. This is the future. We're going to do this." Steven Spielberg asked Tippett, "Like, so what do you think of this new technology?" And, and Tippett said, famously said, I've, ju- I've just become extinct. And Spielberg said, oh, it's a good line. Your existential crisis, I'm going to put that in the movie. <laughs> but what's kind of amazing is Tippett did, I mean, because of Tippett's just amazing work on those earlier mm-hmm. dinosaur films that he made uh, and and his, his just understanding of, of the way just creatures can move is kind of giving me flashbacks to Shadow of the Colossus a little bit. Just just like, because that's the emphasis on animation and timing and movement was all Tippett. Yeah. Um, They'd used various, there was various ways that he influenced the animation. Uh, There was the dinosaur input device, which was this um, mechanized uh, apparatus that allowed him to stop motion animate individual dinosaur movements and transfer them digitally for the CGI team to make it into the movie. So I'm like, glad you have a good explanation for that because I like was yeah. like, what the um, fuck? Imagine is this? like a wire armature or like an action figure, like uh and so as he's moving it and taking each shot, it's actually saved digitally and that info can be imported to the 3D animation software. So uh it's not up to basically even though Phil Tippett is a master of this outdated technology, of this outda- outdated filmmaking method, he's still a master animator. He is yep. still one of the best people in the world at understanding how to communicate like motion and weight and personality in these creatures, more so than like whatever nerds Murin had to like actually get the visuals down. So when you think about how the raptors like kind of leap and snap and bob in those individual shots where yeah. they use CGI, it's Tippett's influence that actually like carries more weight and personality than even just the fact that they had like a poly- like enough polygons to make realistic imagery. 
Hey everybody, it's me, your bearded bruiser Jake, here to tell you about this week's sponsor, Keeps.com. Uh, confession time. I was a premature male pattern baldness sufferer way too early in life. And it was humiliating. Luckily, treatments were available. The downside is, at the time, those treatments were massively expensive and a huge hassle to get at the drugstore. Luckily, there's a company that takes all the hassle out of this process and helps you keep the hair you have. That company is Keeps.com. All you have to do is go through an incredibly simple online sign-up process. I literally did it in a taxi on my way to the airport. And a real licensed physician will examine your case and recommend a treatment plan. Stop hair loss today the easy way with Keeps, offering Customized treatment plans with only FDA-approved hair loss products for about a dollar a day. Your order consists of a three-month supply that'll help you get started, and uh, you can re-up after that. Here's where things get even crazier, because right now, if you want to halt the progression of hair loss, because I'm going to just say it right now, the earlier you start, the more hair you keep. The longer you put it off, the more you're going to be Patrick Stewart. And right now, we're making an offer that, honestly, if you are concerned about hair loss, you have to try this. Simply go to keeps.com slash wizard. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash wizard and get a free month of treatment when you sign up. Keeps. Hair today, hair tomorrow. Also, I want to bring a, a throw another dude in the ring, Michael Lantieri, who did onset effects. He went to school with Ron Howard, wanted to be a director, but ended up getting involved in the special effects department at Universal Studios, working on uh, TV shows like Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica. He was known for his lifelike animation on a wonderful film called Mars Attacks. So he is also involved with onset. So there's just so many different moving parts when it comes to the effects here, and I think really marrying all of those things kind of seamlessly together is what can make a special effects movie so great you know and what we it's kind of funny because we found this after this movie came out and, and influenced everybody to get into the cgi game uh we found that if you went full cgi it's you know dumb. it's bad uh, it's real bad, and it wasn't until like Peter Jackson came out with the Lord of the Rings trilogy that again we kind of circled back around to what they were doing in Jurassic Park, which was marrying model, you know, work with stop animation with with you know uh, practical effects, practical effects exactly uh, with CGI, and and then and then it really you get some some magical stuff out of it. It's rewatching it on a 4K TV with adult eyes. It was actually kind of fascinating to see just how few and far between the CGI shots were because as a kid, yeah. you know, you're watching these like uh, specifically the Tyrannosaurus scene uh, yeah. the, in the rain. Uh, all, you know, it's a giant animatronic. Uh, the Raptor scene in the kitchen Huge. There are these insane uh, rubber suits that they actually like had to, you know, just like warp human bodies to fit inside and only these like quick shots that go by super fast are full cg so the animatronic t-rex stood 20 feet high was wait i'm not done i'm not done with my thought oh, okay let me finish my genius words <laughs> so the way they work in tandem is the cgi shots happen so quickly and are from kind of a distance so that you trust that these creatures are capable of movement mm. you trust that these are fully independent like alive things, but they don't focus too quickly on them. They focus on the uh, prosthetic effects and the practical effects and the animatronics because that's where all the detail is. So you can like, you can feel them. Like you trust that they're real and you trust that they're not just guys in suits because of the way that they know when to use the CG and when to use the practical effects. And it's, it, we, it works so fucking well, even to this day. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. May I talk about the dimensions of the D-Rex now? Yes, yeah, sure. 
The animatronic for the T-Rex stood 20 feet high, 40 feet long, and weighed 17,500 pounds. Was that wet or dry? Because that became an issue. That did become an issue, and the rendering of, of the CG on that became an issue during those rain scenes. Spielberg referred to the T-Rex as the star of the movie, to the point where he actually... Um, the ending was going to be completely different, and he actually rewrote it to bring the T-Rex back in oh, yeah. to the ending of the film, which I love. I love the ending uh, so much. I think it's just so well done. Everything just kind of comes back together, wraps up really quick and tight, perfect, and just like we're out of there. I, I mean, I understand what they went for. I still think it's kind of weird that like uh, the T-Rex was this like giant monster whose whole deal was you could hear him coming from very far away. And he just comes he out just, of nowhere. From, from I top that. of the frame. From top, I, like, yeah. Oh, you weren't looking at the top of the frame. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that this time around. I was like, oh, yeah, wow, that's sort of like, crazy. Within the reality, of, like, it fucking works as a movie, but yeah. I, I always just think in the reality of the movie that like the T-Rex is just standing politely being like, ready? No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. And now... <laughs> Uh, and, you know, they definitely took liberties with the different dinosaurs and stuff. You know, animator Steve Williams decided to, as he put it, throw physics out the window and create a T-Rex that moved at 60 miles per hour, even though its hollow bones would be busted <laughs> if it ran that fast. Um, the the roar of the T-Rex is a baby elephant mixed with a tiger and an alligator. The fucking sound effects, and we'll get into the artist who brought us a lot of that, Um is so amazing. Like the animal combinations that made all the different um The Velociraptor was a teenage horny dolphin. Yes, it was. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the breath of the T Rex was a whale's blow. <laughs> was like a like a blow, blow a whale blowhole from a whale. Um and oh, uh, uh, a dog attacking a rope toy was used for the sounds of the T Rex tearing the uh, Gala Mimas apart mm. during the, during that like crazy uh um I call it the Lion King sequence. Um so, anyways, oh, oh, yeah, and they cut sequoias crashing. Uh, they used sequoias crashing to the ground to be for the sound of its footsteps. Just mm. like incredibly inventive foley work all throughout this movie. Um, and paleontologist Jack Horner said it's the closest I've been to a live dinosaur. Whoa, 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 what? There was a paleontologist on set. He definitely wasn't discredited or disgraced years ago for marrying an undergraduate. That didn't happen. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't even know about that. Wikipedia is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> he was the paleontologist that supervised the designs. Jack Horner was his name. He uh, discovered. He got well known for discovering the Maya Sara or Good Mother Lizard, um, which helped pr prove that uh, there were dinosaurs that cared for their young, and you know there there were had certain um. D natural tendencies that were sort of nurturing and things like that. He was also well known for his research on dinosaur growth. Uh, he theorized that the T-Rex is an obligate scavenger rather than a predatory killer. And he was somewhat an inspiration for the Grant character. For the idea of this like guy. cowboy gruff like Earth Montana paleontologist is definitely the Jack Horner archetype. There was another paleontologist as well named Robert Backer and um, I love this quote from him about the artist and I actually got to watch some footage on YouTube of them like testing out the Velociraptor suits which we can talk more about the Velociraptors in a second but it was such a fun watch. It made me so jealous of them like their job was literally to like dress like dinosaurs and like run around this warehouse and like fake rip things apart and it looked like everybody had like the biggest smile on their face. It just seemed so happy 
with their job. I mean, the, to be fair, I watched that same video of behind the scenes. Uh, it's uh, what's his name, John Rosengrant, and another guy whose nickname was Crash. Mm. We're in the Velociraptor. Yeah, Crash, Crash Bandicoot Stanowski was not Crash Bandicoot Stanowski. <laughs> uh, and Penisaur. The pos- <laughs> You have to be like in this weird hunched position, like this giant harness. Like a foam rubber, so just suffocating hot, like suffocating hot. Uh, like it seems so horrible wearing the the raptor toes as like this stilts on top of that. It it genuinely like my spine exploded just looking at the the way that the, like look at this cutaway. <laughs> like, yeah, it looks so painful That's and horrible. Brutal. That definitely looks brutal. But, you know, they were throwing it on for a little bit, having a laugh and taking it off, you know. Um, But he said of the artists, the artists wanted the latest info on all the species they were reconstructing. They wanted everything to be right. They'd been calling me once a week for months, checking on teeth of T-Rex and skin of Triceratops. I'd send them dozens of pages of dino details. By the way, I love that phrase, dino details. And that the artists were better morphologists than most tenured professors. It really seemed like the artists crafting the things were very passionate about making these dinosaurs come to life. I mean, they cool. took some liberties. like they A ton <laughs> of liberties. Like, uh, I don't know who, I think, I mean, Michael Crichton was smart to be like, like, okay, I know that these are like Utah raptors, what I'm describing, but the name Velociraptor is way cooler. Well, actually, they didn't discover the Utah raptor till after the movie was made. Oh. And they actually came back to him and were like, hey, check it out. You, your whole shit's legitimized now. <laughs> because real Velociraptors are way smaller than the size they are in the movie. Yeah. And then it just so happened that they discovered the Utah Raptor like not too long after the film came out. And they were like, cool. I guess that bullshit thing we did isn't so bullshit anymore. Remember when Alan Grant like gives that fucking creepy speech to the uh, little kid that's like, that eh, sounds like a giant turkey. Yeah, yeah. And he's I forgot about like. Alan Grant like legit like rips that kid's dick off. Yeah, totally. He There's, hates children. That it's was a- under it's like under the frame, but like he's it's definitely Sam Neill being like, and then he cuts your belly, and then definitely goes for your fucking cuts dick. Your fucking balls open, boy, and they dangle about to go dingly dangly. Yeah, there's a lot of fun extended cuts of the scare the kids scene. It's on. Uh, it's on. Bootube, my shitty YouTube site that I started Penisaur. You fucking. I was ready. Footage of the Penisaur. It's got penises for it. For this. Broke my heart. Um, and also, yeah, like one of the ones I was sad to hear about was the uh, Dilophosaurus. Um, the 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 uh one with the poison spitting and the frill. He had. They don't actually have that frill or the or or venom. They don't have any of that stuff. But it was fun to hear about it. They used a paintball mechanism to spit a mixture of methicil and KY jelly. You want to know what methicil is? Doesn't matter, Jake. I'm gonna tell you what methicil is. It's a white powder that dissolves in cold water, forming a clear, vicious solution or gel. And it's attracted to Wayne Knight. The chemical bonds yearning to join <laughs> famed comedic character actor Wayne Knight. Fuck yeah. So you really you definitely looked at the same Wikipedia page I looked at. That. I'm t- as a computer nerd <laughs> with a chip on his shoulder and a love for vending machine food, I felt very called out by Dan Snedry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then there's the Gallimimus, the tinier ones mm-hmm. like that are in the herd, the Lion King scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
they are the uh, they were the first dinosaur actually to get the digital version. They were the convincers that right. Spielberg should go uh, CGI with this. Industrial Light and Magic used them um, first as a skeleton form and then as the skin form that they are for the pursuit. Um, and they also uh, <laughs> to get the reference for their run, the animators were filmed running at the uh, Industrial Light and Magic parking lot, which I tried to find footage of that, but I didn't find that. And um, they they had like these plastic pipes standing in as the tree that the Gallimimus jump over. And remember when one like trips on it and mm-hmm. falls? That was actually st- st- taken straight from this video because one of the animators like Did, totally like, bust busted ass. ass, which is fucking amazing. So, anyways, that made me very happy. And the first actually dinosaur to be filmed in the production was the Triceratops, the sick animatronic uh, operated by eight puppeteers. And uh, Gary Rydstrom, let's bring him up now. He uh, combined the sound of himself breathing into a cardboard tube with the cows near his workplace at Skywalker Ranch to create the vocals. Gary Rydstrom was one of the prominent members of the sound effects crew. Uh, He really enjoyed the process of this because when you think about just the amount of different types of noises in this film, there's the there's the different dinosaur noises, but then there's also just like cars falling through trees and just massive, you know, even like wire snapping constantly. Yeah, I was thinking about just like when they're hanging on the bones at the end and they like clitter clack. Oh, those are uh, bowling pins. There's Oh yeah, yeah. That's amazing. See, like there was just so much great foley to do for this movie, and I think you know this what, guy you know had a always, blast. You know what got me? Uh, the pitter patter of the rain over the SUV mm. was such a strong choice, and yes. like it's like there's literally uh, people make like uh, sleep apps that's just that noise because. The, like the sound of rain on a car roof is actually like kind of a feeling of like safety and yeah. warmth of like shelter and protection. And then to have that busted open by this giant <laughs> yeah. monster was like so powerful, mm-hmm. so scary. That part was absolutely frightening to me as a kid. Uh, Stan Winston's team did not realize that the uh, animatronic was going to be shot in the rain. So uh, they were not set for the tolerances oh, wow. of foam rubber being soaked with water. You uh, Behind the scenes footage. Like in between shots, Stan Winston's team would like literally run out with towels and just try and just get, you know, it's a giant, massive, multi-ton beast. And they still just like needed to get just even a few pounds of water off of it. Um, There's a really upsetting uh, shot from the behind the scenes where uh, the dinosaur is like shuddering as Uh. it struggles under the weight of its wet foam. And it's genuinely creepy because it looks like the T-Rex has gone loco, man. Also, um, apparently the screams from the children were real when it busts through the top with the glass because that glass was not supposed to break the way it did. And, and actually, if you look at it, like that thing totally, if that, like, they lost a little bit of control of it, obviously, for that to happen. I mean, that thing could have killed those kids. Like, that is a giant animatronic. I mean, 17,000 pounds or whatever we said. Um, so anyways, uh, Gary Rydstrom, though, um, he, he was a seven-time Academy Award winner. He went to University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts and started out at Skywalker Sound in 1983. He was mentored by Star Wars sound designer Ben Burt, which I hope we brought up Ben Burt in, our star, in one of our Star Wars episodes. He was a sound technician on Temple of Doom, and then after that, that led to a sound design gig on Spaceballs, <laughs> which fucking rules. Um, One of the cool things that he did was uh, all of the sound design for Backdraft. 
Uh, and I say that because it was actually reused. The sound effects on Backdraft were reused for multiple films, including the Lord of the Rings trilogy and Shrek. He did T2. He did Titanic. He did Saving Private Ryan. I mean, if you think about the sound effects in Saving Private Ryan, that is, I mean, that is as good as it gets. Like, this guy is a fucking maniac. This guy is really good at what he does. Those are very impressive films in terms of the, the sound effects. Um, speaking of the rain scene, too, to pop back to that really quick, the ripples in, in the glass of water, I thought that was a pretty awesome story. Oh, yeah, tell it, tell it. Tell uh, it. So Spielberg is actually inspired to do this by um, when he was in his car listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire, and he could see the vibrations um, uh, in, in the, I guess he had a cup of water in there or whatever that the, ba- the bass rhythm caused. So uh, Michael Lantieri, uh, one of the on-set, uh, the on-set guy that I re- referred to earlier, effects guy, he was unsure how to create the shot until the night before filming when he put a glass of water on a guitar he was playing, which achieved the concentric circles in the water. So he actually, they put guitar strings inside the car and a man on the floor plucked them to achieve the effect. Another, there was a lot of hidden men in those cars because it was also the drive, because they were driverless in yeah. the film. And the so they actually had to remodel the car. Um, I think, what were they, Ford Explorers? They were right? absolutely Ford Explorers. Yeah, they were Ford Explorers. And they had to remodel it and put the driver like in the in the trunk. And he was driving the car from from behind. The there. Ford Explorer was actually kind of a recent model for uh, Ford, and it's it's kind of it's weird to communicate this, but just the idea of an SUV was kind of novel at the time. Like for a while, you would see those and be like, "Oh, that's a Jurassic Park car." <laughs> yeah. Um. I and I want to want so bad. I mean, there are people that will like buy. Uh, I guess ugh, are they vintage at this point? Whatever. Used uh, Ford Explorers and give them the paint job and like go to cons and stuff. Um, can we talk about this cast? I, I think we should probably not talk about the cast on today's episode. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> Fuck Samuel. <laughs> Fuck you, Samuel L. Jackson, with your cigarette. Uh, I just... Uh, uh, I, uh, you didn't say the magic word. Laura Dern is so good in this fucking movie. She is so fucking good in this motherfucking movie she is just like the epitome of i mean from the moment where she you know just her just her expressions of wonder and just like awe to her just freaking the fuck out selling the terror so well to the subtler scenes you know of just like taught you know that scene with um with uh, the dinosaur shit the di- well, the dinosaur <laughs> shit, yes. The scene with dinosaur <laughs> shit. The scene with her in um the having dinner with Hammond mm-hmm. and having the oh, conversation. The ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or the ice cream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, oh, what was it? It's it's still the only oh, what's the line? The illusion was that you were in. You still had control. Yes. Ah, oh, it's Ugh. she's fucking incredible. I I'm need, so glad. I need to read this excerpt uh, from an oral history. Um, sure. This is uh, how she, this is how she found out she was getting the role. Uh, this is Laura Dern speaking. I was talking with Nicolas Cage, and we had just done Wild at Heart together. And I said to him, Nick, they want to put me on the phone with Steven Spielberg, but they want to talk to me about some dinosaur movie. And he was like, you are doing a dinosaur movie. You can never say no to a dinosaur movie. And I was like, really? And he was like, are you kidding? It's a dream of my life to do a movie with dinosaurs. So he was an influence on me, and so I talked to Steven. That's Um, incredible. Yeah. Nicolas Cage, of course, has not appeared in a dinosaur movie, but in 2015, he did illegally buy a dinosaur skull (laughs) and had to give it back to the Mongolian government. I think we may have to do an episode on Nicolas Cage just specifically at some point. Someone pay us money and we'll do it immediately. (laughs) 
uh, I'm so happy Helen Hunt and Gwyneth Paltrow uh, did not get the role they were both considered. Mm-hmm. But of course, Laura Dern was always Spielberg's first choice for Ellie Sattler. For, um, uh, for Dr. Alan Grant, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, had considered Harrison Ford, who and turned what, it and, down. And William Hurt, also. Uh, oh, that was, He was the first person who got offered the role, actually. Um, and he turned it down. And um, just before, uh, it was only a few weeks before the start of filming that uh, Sam Neill was cast in the role. Neil said of this, it all happened real quick. I hadn't read the book, knew nothing about it, hadn't heard anything about it. In a matter of weeks, I'm working with Spielberg. It was, he, he's also great. I think he's just fantastic. The arc for his his very simple arc of not liking kids to liking kids, you know, like was was very well done, very very well sold mm-hmm. for sure, and a lot of good comedy. Like I think he has really solid like comedy timing, but then is also able to be very like you know you can take him very seriously when he needs to be taken very. seriously. He's also this like classic uh, Spielberg archetype of. Um because he's on on either side, he has like uh, Ian, he has Jeff Goldblum, Ian Malcolm as the uh, like swarthy like player version of masculinity. Like Jeff Goldblum is so good in Jeff this Go- movie. And on the other side, he has Muldoon as like the rough and tumble like violent hunter for masculinity. And oh, and Spielberg always roots for like kind of the clever, sincere dad type. Yeah, and that's communicated throughout the movie. And it's it's kind of just a weird little note. Jeff Goldblum, of course, uh, uh, won the role after uh, Jim Carrey read for it. Yes, Jim Carrey auditioned for the role. Apparently did very well. I'm sure he could have pulled it off just fine, but very, again, happy that Goldblum got it because he is one of his most iconic performances, I feel, at this oh, point, absolutely. especially for people in our generation. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he It really it kind of brought him back on the map, I feel like, in a lot after, of ways. After he turned into a giant fly in that documentary. <laughs> and, and the, yeah, and the, the... Just every little, he just steals the scene every time he's in it. He just, every single little thing he does is just so right on and and funny and entertaining and weird. Like, he never makes, like, obvious choices, too. So, you know, he just, he always does interesting. That weird laugh he does at the in the very first scene when he's like, so you're a... You study dinosaur. What does he say? Like you're a you're a paleontologist or whatever. And he's just like yeah. And then he just laughs like a fucking maniac. And that's all he has to do to give Hammond the line. I'm sorry for you know he's a very strange man. Like all he all he had to do was laugh. He didn't have a line there. He just laughs like a crazy person. And then Hammond then is then granted the ability to give the line about how he's like this guy's crazy. <laughs> I read a thing that uh you know in one of the many just blitz of tabs Chrome tabs I had open this week. Uh, that a mo- like ninety nine percent of the dialogue in the movie at Ian Malcolm has in the movie is as written. It's just Jeff, Jeff Goldblum is so good at like looking like he's ad libbing yeah. <laughs> that it has this naturalness to it. It feels very off the cuff. Uh, very, the very. one thing that he, d- uh, according to Jeff Goldblum, uh, when talking with Steven Spielberg, they were talking about folding Alan Grant's character into Ian Malcolm's character. And uh, Jeff Goldblum said, like, no, he needs to be his own, like, thing. And uh, the scene with the T-Rex, originally uh, Jeff Goldblum's character was supposed to, like, also run away like like the, like, Gennaro, the lawyer. Uh, but he said it would be uh, more it would be more interesting if he also acted heroically, but was like kind of dumb about it, which yeah. is what happens in the movie yes. is that he's selfless, but like 
Alan he didn't Grant, need to do he what didn't he need did. To do that. He threw the thing. T Rex is about to go off the off the, which is yeah. But um, I did. I do think that helped add to making, especially making him more likable, you know, or keeping him likable. Like if he had acted like a coward in that moment, you wouldn't want him. You you would expect him to die at some point in the rest of the movie, you know, if he hadn't acted cowardly during that moment. And most important to Ian Malcolm's character is he had the fucking one-liners. Yes, I fucking. Loved it. Um, <laughs> dear God. Okay, wait. I'm going to just... You You claim to have watched this movie every day. I For... Uh, the, and But 20 years ago. But yes. Every day 20 years ago. Okay, I'm just going to read the setups and as to the best of your knowledge, try and recite the Ian, Ian Malcolm line. Okay. Uh, this is the scene John oh, uh, Hammond... so bad. Yeah. Uh, All major theme parks have delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, nothing worked. Uh... I was turned into a fly uh, <laughs> in a science experiment. I did it myself. What is it? <laughs> it's the second one. <laughs> yeah, but John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the Pirates don't eat the tourists. <laughs> yes, that is such a good one. That is such a good one. I used to have this movie memorized. I no longer did because I purposely did not watch it for 20 years because uh, I ruined it for myself because I watched it too many times uh, as a kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you did it, you crazy son of a bitch. You did it. You're married? <laughs> Occasionally, uh, yes, I'm always on the lookout for future ex Mrs. Malcolm. Oh, so wet. I'm dripping wet already. <laughs> so good. Just this whole explanation of chaos theory to Laura Dern's character is so great. Like that little moment um, is, is so fantastic. Uh, every, everything just, yeah, there's just something about all of the characters involved that are just so welcoming, you know, and just just so, uh, just really bring you in. Wayne Knight, aka Newman, uh, Spielberg. Actually, so I didn't even know he was in Basic Instinct, which means I also don't think I've seen Basic Instinct. But Spielberg saw him in Basic Instinct, and this is what he said: "I waited for the credits to roll and wrote his name down." <laughs> That's how much he Dodson. Liked him in that we movie. got Dodson we here. Got Dodson here. <laughs> Uh-uh-uh, you didn't say the magic word. Please! I hate this hacker crap. <laughs> oh, he's so good. Hang on to your butts. Um, Ariana Richards, who played, she he played the girl, the little girl, right? Yeah. I was called into a casting office, and they just want, wanted me to scream. I heard later that Steven had watched a few girls on tape that day, and I was the only one who ended up waking his sleeping wife off the couch, and she came running through the hallway to see if the kids were all right. I thought that was a pretty cool story. Uh, how did you feel about Tim back in the... The little boy? The little boy. So the little boy auditioned for Hook, and Spielberg was so impressed with him, but he was too young to play the role that he auditioned for. So he said, I'm I'm going to put you in a movie. Right. I'm going to put you in a movie. I've, I, t- I mean, A, he's the one as, you know, he's the me in the movie from when I saw it for the first time. I've, I totally, I thought he was fine. You didn't like his... Uh, I was ready to hate him the whole time because, like, I was, you know, because I just remembered him as this annoying little kid, but like, fuck it, he sells it. Little sells kids it are like, annoying that yeah. way. He's annoying that way, and then he become, you know, and he gets as the movie goes on and things get shit gets real. You know, he he gets, I think, more and more endearing. The electric fence scene was also super clutch. Yeah, because it's it's it was it's it's kind of insane, but like at the time, you know, it's a PG thirteen movie. The fact that like. A kid got fucked up that yeah, hard. Yeah, yeah. Was like new and scary. Like it's. I remember being in the theater watching it and being like, I didn't realize you could 
do that. <laughs> Fucking a million volts or a tiny boy. And CPR and like yeah, yeah. crying sister. I mean, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, Ariana just fucking sold like, you, yeah. yeah, it was a genuine, like I know it was still a Spielberg movie, but like the fact that they kind of like made you believe that like, oh, fuck, what kind of movie is this was actually incredibly well done. Uh, and, if, and then Richard Attenborough, uh, <laughs> phenomenal in this movie. He had been 15 years into retirement from acting. He actually beat out Spielberg with uh, the his movie, uh, Gandhi. He directed Gandhi, and it beat Spielberg's E.T. for Best Director and Picture at the Academy we Awards We keep bringing that up that summer of 1982, all the amazing movies that had come out that year, yeah. uh, Blade Runner, The Thing, all this cool shit, and like... Richard Attenborough was the top dog. Yeah, he yeah. was better than all these fuckers we've talked about. <laughs> and I feel like Spielberg is this like is this a power move? This is like a like put your hand in my pocket prison bitch move. He said that he agreed to end the semi-retirement because Spielberg had, as he put it, the charm of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> I think that might be anti-Semitic. Cut that out. I'm, I'm not going to risk it. You dead f- English fuck. <laughs> Uh, so filming begins on August 24th, 1992. Oh, also Samuel L. Jackson, do you have an anecdote about him being in the movie or no, he's, he's just, just awesome delivers. in it, right? He's just so good at it. Uh, he is Hang smoking. Hang on to your butts. He's shown smoking, which is a sign of death in Spielberg movies. Mm. So like if you've watched enough of it, you're like, oh, he's definitely going to just be a severed arm in an hour. Uh, On August 24th, 1992, uh, filming begins on the Hawaiian island of Kauai, and a lot of it was done in uh, Hawaii. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, though famously, uh, a hurricane passes through Hawaii and totally... um, Totally messes up the shooting a little bit, but also several of the storm scenes are from that hurricane. It was Hurricane Iniki, and uh, uh, yeah, that was like kind of a big thing that that sort of messed with production, but also added to it. Um, and yeah, uh, fuck, do I have? I, I we've told so many of the tales that I have written down here for the filming portion. Uh, other than it seemed like um, not not too. You don't have the Jaws shit happening, mm-hmm. you know, which, by the way, is is playing on one of Newman's. Uh, I, I can only call him Newman, by yeah. the way. One of uh, one Wayne of Knight. Wayne Knight, Dennis Nedry, Dennis Nedry, one of his uh, computer screens. It's playing in a tiny little corner. Um, good, but for, good for. I don't think digital video technology had advanced that much. Yeah, I don't. Know, yeah, yeah, That's right. A huge .mov file. Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, it, it seems like it wasn't you know nearly as insane and and fucked up as like jaws was have we we haven't done a jaws have no, we? we haven't we should do a jaws uh, i never seen it whoa yeah i'm not gonna give you shit for that but i will say this because i hate when people are like i can't believe you haven't seen this movie why do you walk around <laughs> <laughs> but i can't i can't finish that <laughs> he also um called Jurassic Park like kind of his his modern day jaws at that point. Like he wanted to make another jaws and that was that was a lot of Jurassic Park for him. Um I I keep I keep wanting to go back to uh the logo cuz the logo is so brilliant, so so iconic and actually I'm still shocked about this actually uh, was created for the book but w- before the movie again. So it was it was again just like this logo maestro that does amazing like book covers. His name is Chip Kid. Oh fuck. He's a graphic designer based out of NYC. 
He's, um, you know, he was inspired by American pop culture. Batman and Superman comics were a big, a big inspiration for him. He did cover concepts for Brett Easton Ellis, um, Haruki Murakami, Cormac McCarthy, and Frank Miller, just to name a few. He has a long list, and I mean, he must have made such an idiotic amount of money on that Jurassic Park logo. I mean, it is the so Jurassic universal. Park font is like yeah, iconic. It is so iconic. Like this dude, I, I was just kind of blown away that again, it was made for the book initially that this was just a book cover that is just so perfectly like so perfect for, for the, the logo on the, you know, on the Jeeps, the fucking giant gates with the, it just is so there. It's just so like fucking seems so perfectly tailored for the whole thing. That is, oh man, I didn't think we'd get to that, but I mean, it is super surreal how they nailed like kind of this weird imbalance of like, trying to make a theme park out of the brutality of nature, but also making a popcorn movie about the commercialization, about the brutality of nature. Uh, I think it's 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 during the the same scene with the ice cream with uh, with uh, Hammond and uh, Dr. Statler, uh, where, you know, there's all these mugs and T-shirts with the Jurassic Park logo that if you walked outside of the theater, you would see. Yeah, it's in perfect marketing. Yeah. Perfect marketing. Um, also, to, to just round back around to a couple little things. Uh, so that DTS I was talking about, the Digital Theater Systems, Inc., that was uh, essentially the... Spielberg wanted the film to be the first film with digital sound, and this was like kind of a big transition. If you remember, if you did, we're lucky enough to catch this movie out in the theaters, like right when it came out. That sound was a step above anything you were hearing in the movie theater anywhere else. And I remember the big DTS logo popping up and just blowing my mind at how like fucking fierce that noise was coming out of the speakers it was founded by a guy named terry beard a tal uh, a caltech graduate who actually uh, he got a hold of like somebody who knew spielberg and auditioned a remaster of close encounters of the third kind for spielberg spielberg was so impressed that he he had to have it in jurassic park um and over a thousand theaters in the u.s adopted the system after that came out and it really did change again so not only are we going cgi we're working with all this all this new uh technology but also the sound fucking was evolving with this film this film was such a landmark for special effects for for sound for visuals everything it really launched a whole new movement in cinema for better for the for worse because i mean so many we also got a lot of aggravating you know over the top cgi from it but um it really really changed the game on so many things which is why i mean it won a ton of like academy awards for you know different effects things um visual and whatnot it's uh, actually uh within film like if you actually look at a piece of 35 millimeter film there would be like the way they actually transported the sound there would be a waveform like printed all the way like in tiny uh in the side like next to the film sprockets and that was like analog sound and the digital sound they added like a third column with like it kind of looks like a qr code like white and black uh squares and that was the digital signal. Mm. And now with um, like there's so many audio formats that if you actually look at that chunk of film in the theaters that still use film, it's mostly digital now. There's like individual like data being stored on like the bits between sprockets. It's kind of in like, we I, I'm doing a terrible job explaining it. But like there is so much I just keep thinking sprockets, <laughs> the fucking SNL <laughs> sketch, the black and white of Mike Myers. Sketch. It's it's insane. Uh basically by by doing DTS they 
changed like the very format of film. Right. That's what I'm trying to get Exa- to. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so unlike Iron Giant, uh, they really put a lot into the marketing of this film to make sure it was a massive success. There was a campaign that cost $65 million, uh, and they did deals with 100 companies to market 1,000 products. You already talked about the toys. There were the video games. I actually really dug the Sega Genesis uh, Jurassic Park game. It was like probably, I think, That was too the side-scroller, right? I believe the SNES so. was like this weird like kind of Legend of Zelda perspective. Yeah, there thing. were different ones, right? I'll have to go look into that. Maybe that's something we could come back to in a in a bonus app or something. I didn't really check. I did. I, I I remembered playing. I remember being very pissed off. I couldn't beat it, but I remember also enjoying it quite a bit. Um, I just remember the sit down arcade shooter. That one was fun. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. It was. It was. It was a whole. It was. You know. They marketed very well for this film, and it was funny because it was PG thirteen, but they marketed so much to children. It was kind of like he got over. You know, because the whole Jaws thing. Um, getting that movie did wasn't that movie PG? Didn't that get a PG uh, rating? Many people kind of uh, suggest that the PG thirteen rating would not exist without Steven Spielberg, who lobbied for it because uh, movies like Gremlins and uh, Temple of Doom skirted the line so quickly that like Spielberg knew that kids were still going to be the main audience, yeah, and he needed some kind of like escape valve to like make sure that parents could still like with a clean conscience, like let their kids see these movies. Uh, and I, I think making a PG 13 actually probably sold it to kids even more, yeah. you know, to be honest with you. I um, mean, it's up until Deadpool at this point, like PG 13 was the most profitable yeah. of the ratings. Uh, and the music was composed by John Williams, who we've talked about plenty on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can go back to the star Wars episodes. We probably where we cover him the most, but he, uh, I'll just say that he felt uh, he needed to write pieces, as he put it, that would convey a sense of awe and fascination, given that it dealt with the overwhelming happiness and excitement that would emerge from seeing live dinosaurs. And that song that um, I literally sing anytime I'm trying to play somebody off of a speech they're giving, um, the, the song that we sung at the very beginning, it is just so, I think it conveys that to to such a T, to such a strong, strong to uh, such leveled. a T-Rex. Rex? <laughs> when dinosaurs ruled the earth. It came out, of course, at the it, it first debuted at the Uptown Theater on June 9th, 1993 in Washington, D.C. It was released in the U.S. on June 11th, 1993. I was there opening night. Uh, for some reason, I thought it was like a Thanksgiving movie or I thought it was like a holiday movie, not like a midsummer movie. But I just remember that there was literally nothing else happening on the planet but that movie coming out when it did. And it completely blew my 10-year-old mind. I, I really was just could, – could not have been more fucking just into that movie when that movie came out. So uh, it was great to get to do this episode on it. I think that about covers it for me. Jake, do you have anything else to say about Jurassic Park? Uh, there's so many good scenes, so many great moments. I want to keep talking about it, but we're, we're hitting a hard time break. Uh, so maybe we'll do a bonus episode on yeah. the Patreon. But uh, it just felt so good to watch this movie yes. and know, and just that warm feeling of just watching it just hold up every bit as well as I remember. Lexi, it. I literally had to like stop the movie this morning because Lexi like couldn't handle like getting ready for her day and not just stopping every two <laughs> seconds to watch another scene from it. I mean, it is just that just it, for anybody, I, especially around our age, but Lord knows for all, you know, all, all, all range of ages. I mean, but you know, it, it is just, 
it is just so rewatchable and is just so fucking just right up our wheelhouse when it comes to, you know, the, those nostalgic just fucking what, man, I loved being a kid, you know, kind of uh, uh, pieces of entertainment. Oh, for the past, like, over a decade, Phil Tippett has been working on his own independent movie called mm. War God. Ooh. And if you look at footage of it, it looks like what every tool video ever made, like, combined with the skill of, like, a true master. It's, okay. It looks fucking amazing. Cool. Yeah, check out a trailer for that if you have the time. All right. Well, uh, if you want to check us out some more, follow us uh, 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 patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. You can catch me on twitch.tv forward slash holdnatorsho. Jake. Oh, you can catch me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung and uh, on dorkly.com where I contribute various things. Or you can see Jake giving me bits on my Twitch uh, as Jake Young is bored. So enjoy that as well. It's a good stream. I want to support it. <laughs> All right. Thank you much, everybody. And remember, the only one who agrees with me is the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.